This is Reno Lovison, executive producer at ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com, an eclectic Chicago-oriented media showcase of lifestyle content related to multicultural and age-diverse people, art, music, theater, and events. We strive to give a voice and added exposure to those who are not always in a position to get the attention of larger media outlets, perhaps because they're emerging personalities or because their message is directed to a niche audience. We're very excited to add a new voice to our collection of podcasts. Connie Corcoran Wilson is the author of over a dozen books. She's a frequent film reviewer and political commentator. Originally from East Moline, Illinois, she splits her time now mostly between her home outside Austin, Texas, and her condo in downtown Chicago. Some ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com followers might be familiar with Connie's contribution to our video coverage of the Chicago International Film Festival, which you can find at our website. You can learn more about Connie Wilson at her blog, WeeklyWilson.com, which is also home to her podcast of the same name that includes an array of diverse guests talking about a variety of topics. Since ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com is specifically dedicated to topics related in some way to Chicago, Connie has agreed to share a few of her recorded interviews of Chicago authors and celebrities that we feel are of particular interest to our listeners. This particular episode features Linda Gartz, author of Redlined, a memoir of race, change, and fractured community in 1960s Chicago. As it happens, Connie, Linda, and I became acquainted with each other through our membership in Midwest Writers Association, an organization comprised primarily of professional nonfiction business writers and journalists. I will say that I read this well-written book via Kindle and enjoyed it very much. It's a melange of relatively recent Chicago baby boomer history centered around a family story that includes something of the immigrant experience of the early 20th century, mental illness, coming of age, and changing race relations played out on Chicago's west side during the turbulent 1960s. Let's take a listen to Connie's interview with Linda after about 20 seconds of our theme song, Foster Avenue Beach by Steve Solomon. To the My guest tonight is Chicago author Linda Gartz, author of Redlined, the 2018 Chicago Writers Association Best Book of the Year in Indie Nonfiction. Linda's book is subtitled, quote, A Memoir of Race, Change, and Fractured Community in 1960s Chicago. And it draws heavily on correspondence between her mother and her father, Lillian and Fred Gartz, that took place over many years. Linda notes in the opening page quote, without their commitment to detail and writing, Redline wouldn't exist. Linda is also a six-time Emmy nominee as a documentary producer and is an author, blogger, educator, and archivist. She has worked for all the major TV networks in Chicago, mostly on documentaries, but also producing magazine pieces and consumer segments for the local ABC 4 p.m. newscast, 
Her productions have aired on PBS, ABC, CBS, and Investigation Discovery Channel, syndicated nationwide. Uh, the reviews for her book, which is which are well deserved, include "Fearless and Precise: Impossible to Put Down" and uh, among the 2018 Best Book of the Year uh, Indie Nonfiction Awards. One that I will repeat again that says a stunning debut memoir. So I'm very very happy to be able to talk to Linda tonight. Welcome, Linda. Oh, Connie, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction, and thanks for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, I am, too, because I am, uh, I think I'm slightly older than you, because I have strolled through the 60s with you and remember very much all of that, not from being in Chicago, however, but before we started on the wonderful book, um, you have had several careers, all of them successful. Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about your own background, which I have probably shorted you on, on some things. Oh, where to start? Let's see. Well, I, like you, Connie, I was a teacher. That's where I started. Um, Actually, I I was a German major, and I lived in Munich for a year between ages 19 and 20. Then I came back and worked for a year. My mother told me in those days, this was good advice from a mom, to always take typing and shorthand so you can always get a job. So that was how I was able to uh, have my first apartment. And then I got my master's in teaching, and I taught for several years. And then I just got sort of an itch and wanted to try something different and searched and searched. I used the book, What Color is Your Parachute? And I followed its advice religiously. And eventually, under, after great frustration, I took a video production class. And I discovered that everything that I liked about teaching was also the same kinds of skills one used in video production. And that was my jumping off point. My first job uh, was at Catholic Television Network in Chicago, yes. The Archdiocese here in Chicago had its own TV network back in the early 80s. You know how it is with any career. Once you have something you can show the next employer, then you can keep building on it. And so I produced a piece for Catholic TV that that won an award at the um, Chicago Film Festival. So that was really exciting. I didn't expect that. Then that piece got me a job producing a documentary at WLS-TV, which is our ABC affiliate. And then from there, you know how it goes. You just keep at it and find the job here and there. And I started producing documentaries at CBS, the WBBM. It's actually WBBM, a CBS affiliate, and moved from there to PBS, uh, RWTTW. And that's where I produced the first uh, documentary there was called Changing Habits. Um, it was I've seen, I've seen that. Yeah, it was a I great thought that I thought so... Uh-huh. Go ahead, Connie. I saw it at the Chicago Film Festival and was very impressed by it about the nuns and their desire to have, uh, shall we say, more of a say in the Catholic Church. Yes, it was great. Um, great documentary. Was, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, it was. It was. I I've got to meet all these nuns through Catholic TV, and I felt they were. I got more information from them than any of the priests. And I found that they were really fascinating women, despite the image that people might have of nuns. So this was a look at, uh, you know, nuns' conflict with American nuns' conflict with the Vatican. And so from there, we went and produced others. I produced one that I was one of my favorites, um, Teach Me, which then was able to go back and use my experience in teaching. So that's kind of how I got to, to TV production. And it was um, a journey, like we all say, like we've all had. 
Tell me, you, know, now you and I know what you mean by the title redlined, but uh, perhaps some of the uh, those out there who have not yet read your book, uh, Bill Curtis said, uh, the announcer from CBS, redlining destroyed the American dream without its victims even knowing it. Uh, explain to the audience what that redlined term means. Okay, yes. Thanks for that opportunity, Connie. You know, when I talk to people, I would say just about Anybody under the age of 50 that I have spoken with, unless they are in the field of understanding, you know, urban um, neighborhoods, doesn't really know, has never heard of redlining. And many people over 50 may think they know what it means, but they, they don't. Redlining was an explicit federal government policy that started in 1933 under the Roosevelt administration. And the idea was that they wanted to jumpstart the housing market, and so they wanted to make loans more available, which sounds great. But in doing so, they um, enlisted government surveyors and real estate um, people across the country to create maps of communities and neighborhoods to show where it was safe to uh, lend money and where it was unsafe to lend money. And so they created these four um, four levels of neighborhoods, and they used four different colors to identify them. If a neighborhood was considered completely safe for a loan, it was um, colored green, and that meant you could give a loan there with no no worries. If um, if it was still you know a viable neighborhood and, and had good housing stock, and I might add all white, then it was colored blue. Yellow meant uh, that it was a declining neighborhood. And red meant hazardous, and no loans were to be given in a neighborhood that was designated red. And they literally would draw red lines around these neighborhoods. And there could be several reasons why a neighborhood was redlined. You know, the housing stock could be bad. Uh, sometimes foreigners moving in was a reason. But for sure, if a single black person lived in a neighborhood, then that neighborhood was redlined, and nobody in that neighborhood that neighborhood could get a mortgage or any kind of housing loan. So that's where the term redlining comes from. Well, that is, uh, I should add, before we break for a, a slight uh, commercial, that there are extensive maps in the books who help us all know where this took place. And when we come back from break, I will ask specifically, where were you when you were growing up, Linda? But don't go away. This is a terrifying, intense story of the dark people and places that lurk just beneath the surface of seemingly normal, small-town America. Tad McGreevy dreams about evil in horrifyingly vivid detail, but doesn't know if the evil acts he witnesses in his nightmares are happening now, are in the past, or are going to occur in the future. Thankfully, he has a power that he has never revealed, that will allow him to wage a battle to the death against those who would harm the ones he loves. Read The Color of Evil by Connie Corcoran Wilson. This is Connie Wilson with Linda Gartz, the uh, the author and and uh, documentarian who's telling us about Redlined, her book. Uh, go on a little bit about the mapping you were talking about and where exactly it was that you were growing up. Sure. Um, well, if people are familiar with Chicago, I'm sure people have seen the downtown area from aerial views and numerous times. If you draw a straight line from downtown Chicago, the heart of downtown, directly west for five miles, you get to an area that's <laughs> called West 
Garfield Park. Um, there actually is a, gar- a beautiful Garfield Park. Jens Jensen was the designer of that park, and it's it was beautiful. It's still a beautiful park. But anyway, that can no matter where you are in the country, if you can picture five miles directly west of downtown, that's where I grew up. And when I grew up in the neighborhood, um, actually, I, I looked up the statistics. When my parents uh, bought the house in about 1949, the 1950 census shows that that neighborhood was 99 and three quarters percent white. That's how specific they, uh, the census was. By 1960, it was about 86% white, and I'd say within a few years, it just flipped completely from all white to all black. And it really kind of happened in a matter of months, because of when the first African American moved into the neighborhood, then whites began fleeing by the thousands, and I mean by the thousands. Whites were able to escape to the suburbs, where the FHA gave most of its loans, but the FHA would not underwrite any loans in a red line neighborhood, which is, as I described earlier, was a neighborhood that was designated um, not to be, that, that the federal government would not allow loans to be given there. The FHA would not underwrite any loans in a neighborhood with a single black person or in any development with a single black person. So when I grew up there, it was, I'd say, kind of a middle and lower middle class neighborhood, but it was really was virtually all white. And then, you know, when the first African-American moved on to our block, um, that was in 1963, within a couple of months, two-thirds of the block had moved, and within a year, we were about the last white family in the neighborhood. So that's how quickly um, it went, the, 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 this racial change occurred. Now, lest the listeners think this is a a boring tome about um, uh, racial injustice and there's nothing more to it, uh, you tell the story of of your family uh, from start to finish as far as as your uh, parents go, and you you tell it against the backdrop of exactly what's happening in West Garfield Park, and your mother, uh, in particular, seemed very open-minded and very uh, hardworking, certainly, and wanted to be able to rent to anyone that she felt like renting to that she thought was a responsible uh, person. and uh, But as you have depicted it, that did not seem to be the prevailing attitude in your whole neighborhood. Right. Well, to give a perspective, this, this book is not an academic book. There are lots of academic books about redlining that will give you all the details with you know tons of footnotes, and many of them are, and I relied on many of them, for my research, this is above all, it's a family story about my family that lived in this neighborhood since 1912. That's when my grandparents settled in West Garfield Park. And my dad was born there in 1914, and my parents were married there in 1942, and they bought their home in 1949. And it seemed like this would be the, you know, the perfect middle-class dream. They saved their money and they bought a home. So what inspired this book, and I think this is really important for your listeners to know, is after my mom died in 1994, um, we were clearing out our house, separating trash from treasure, and in the attic we found our gold. There we discovered that my parents and grandparents had saved thousands and thousands of pages of letters, diaries, documents, photos. Um, You name it, they saved it. We filled 25 bankers' boxes with the good stuff and then filled a couple of dumpsters as well. So um, what, when I finally had time to start looking through this, I was like whisked back in time. I had these World War II letters that took me back 
to my uncle who was a navigator in World War II. I had my dad's diaries from the 30s. My mom started a diary when she was only 10 years old in 1927. And so I was able to like rebuild the whole 20th century of the Gartz family on the west side of Chicago. Um, so that's what inspired this. When I saw how much detail and information was there from the personal lives of just regular folks, these weren't famous people. You know, my grandfather was a janitor. He was an immigrant. That's how he made his living. You know, there was this so much, so much information, so many pieces of data, uh, right, um, letters and diaries and so on. I had to figure out how to focus it. And I decided that the most important focus was to pick this era of redlining because that is a topic that is still relevant today. This is not a relic of the past. Right now, we are seeing how African Americans are dying uh, at much higher rates than whites from coronavirus. And if you look where they live, they live in these neighborhoods that were originally redlined. Virtually all segregated neighborhoods today, that, and studies have been done on this, where African Americans live were neighborhoods that were originally redlined. So what is the result of that? Well, there's disinvestment, there's poverty, there's lack of uh, access to decent food, um, there's lack of good public transportation. You know, all these things, it's what we call the social determinants of health are not there. And so, you know, I'm just saying this is a family story interwoven with the history of redlining, but it is totally relevant today because we see the impact on our African-American neighbors right now, our you know, the people in our country who are suffering the most. They are also our essential workers. They're the ones who are driving our buses. So, you know, there is really a lot of relevance to understanding how this came about. Why, you know, people read this and say, why is this happening? Well, you can take it back to redlining. So what I think I, I've tried to do here is write a book that has a compelling family story. I mean, my grandmother was mentally ill and lived with us for 15 years. She was actually psychotic. And so that is interwoven in the story of my parents' marriage. And it's also kind of a coming-of-age story of me. You know, this is a book that is based in history, but it's as relevant today as ever, especially now in our coronavirus time. You're listening to ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com. This is just a reminder to please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast or website to be reminded when new content is added. Be sure to listen to our monthly summary of Chicago neighborhood news extrapolated from Inside Publications, three local newspapers, Inside Booster, News Star, and Skyline. As always, if you need video production for your business or organization, check out renoweb.net. Let us know what you think of our podcast. If you're an author and need a video trailer for your book or would like to be a guest on one of our programs, send an email to reno at renoweb.net. This is Connie Wilson, back with my guest, Linda Gartz, the author of Redlined, a, a Tale of Chicago. And she is explaining a little bit more about the redlined neighborhoods and the uh, the fact that the law, uh, you said that was repealed when, Linda? Redlining became illegal in 1968 with the passage of the Fair Housing Act. But what's interesting about that is that redlining in a certain way still continues, not legally, but in more subtle ways. A big research undertaking uh, was done by the PBS NewsHour and Reveal, the Center for Investigative Reporting. 
And they found that today they crunched the numbers on like 3 million mortgages. And when they came out of that, they found that um, still today, whites with same financial profile as African-Americans get mortgages at three times the rate of African-Americans. So there's something going on there, whether they notice where the black applicants live, if they actually meet the black applicant, if they can tell, look at the name. You know, and of course, the, the banks have all the documentation and say, no, 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 this is all you know, on the up and up. But the fact is that whites with the same financial um, background get mortgages at three times the rate of blacks. So it was illegal in 1968, but we still have, the, um, we, we still have it going on in more subtle ways. Now, from reading the book, I know that your parents, especially your mom, were um, through a variety of circumstances, but a lot of it just uh, the good old fashioned hard work. I think they were your mom in particular seems determined to make uh, their property, uh, you know, stay their property. They did not seem to want to leave the neighborhood, as most of their neighbors seem to have done. Uh, Do you, in retrospect, feel that was this a mistake on their part? Should they have cleared out? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's a hard question to answer. Uh, it's impossible to change the past. I think that they were idealists and adventurous people. And there was also some family guilt at play. My grandparents, without telling them in 1965, just unceremoniously said, we're moving to Villa Park, which is a, a suburb about 45 minutes from where we lived. They just and said, we're giving you our six flat. Now, that sounds like it would be a great gift, and it would have been if my parents would have sold it right then and there. It was worth $40,000, the brick six flat, but that was a lot of money back then. But I think for some reason they sort of felt that my grandparents expected them to take care of the building, um, and they were not really afraid of the changing neighborhood. I mean, a lot of people became frightened, even though my brother had been Um, you know, beaten up by a black kid. For some reason, my parents felt they were just going to stay and take care of their building. So whether it was the right decision or not, I think financially it was a wrong decision because they lost money on on that uh, over to, and they worked themselves practically to death um, to keep those buildings going and um, keep them up in the way they wanted to as the neighborhood descended deeper and deeper into poverty. But then, on the other hand, they, I think, learned something more about another group of people that they had not known at all, that is African-Americans. I mean, we, we had no contact with African-Americans until the changing neighborhood. And so there was a lot of fear among white people as to what would happen when African-Americans moved into the neighborhood. So, you know, there's two sides to this coin. Financially, for sure, they would have been better off if they had sold that building immediately. But this is what they did. They both had a strong work ethic, both my mother and my father. I think my father uh, sort of felt like this was still his neighborhood because he had been born there in 1914 and lived there his whole life. And my mom just was driven by this idea of um, that she was going to prove, like all her, all her friends would say to her, you know, oh, you, those, the black people will just ruin those buildings. And she felt like, well, if I really make beautiful apartments and take care of these buildings and respond to my tenants, I'm going to prove that they're wrong. So it was sort of like a, almost a, a moral challenge. And, uh, you know, she was for the most part, right. I mean, she, you know, she had a few deadbeat tenants, but she had deadbeat white tenants, you know, for, for 13 years. 
the riot uh, period. I, I really wasn't aware that Chicago uh, had, I, uh, certainly we all know about the riots in Watts, but what period of time uh, wasn't West Garfield Park and others, I'm sure, involved in, in some rioting in the 60s that, that you profile in your book? Yes. Uh, the Watts riots were in August 1965, and this is well before Martin Luther was murdered. Um, the Watts riots started because of a confrontation between a police officer and a young black man, and then it just got out of control and destroyed millions of dollars of property, and a lot of people died. In our neighborhood, in West Garfield Park, there was a, the fire department was still all white, and um, meantime, the neighborhood had been you know, primarily African-American for like at least three, well, maybe two years. And a fire truck left the firehouse one day in August of 1965. And for some reason, it left without someone at the tiller of the um, hook and la- of the ladder of the hook and ladder truck. So when the, when the truck took a, f- a right turn, the ladder swung free and it killed a young African-American woman standing on the corner, Desi Mae Williams. And this just caused an explosive reaction in the neighborhood. African-American guys, they gathered together, they put up posters. I actually have, I have the original Daily News report from them and I put a picture of the sign in the book saying, you know, we must have, um, you know, white firemen kill black women. We have to protect our black women. And um, pretty soon the crowd dispersed and, you know, Molotov cocktails started being thrown. And that was the first riot. And that was, it actually didn't, it damaged a lot of property. Windows were broken and so on. After Martin Luther King was murdered in 1968, then the neighborhood went up in flames. And I mean, it looked like Dresden. If you look on my website at a video um, trailer of the book, you can see an image of the firefighters fighting these enormous, um, conflagrations that occurred because of, um, of Martin Luther King's death. And this is Connie Wilson with Weekly Wilson, and here with my guest, Linda Gartz, the author of Redlined. And Linda had a, a site she wanted to mention to those listeners who are interested in this whole concept of how the cities were uh, drawn up. Uh, Linda, what was the site that you wanted to mention? Uh, yeah, it's called Mapping Inequality. Dot com and um, you can find 239 cities of which the redlining maps have been digitized um, by the University of Richmond in collaboration with other schools. It's a fascinating site. You can learn about redlining. You can Google your own town. You know, it's not obviously every town in the country, but major. You know, 239 cities have been digitized. Anybody who wants to really take a look at what these maps actually looked like, you can go to that site, mappinginequality.com, and really see for yourself exactly what um, what these um, red line neighborhoods looked like. And they'll also give you the commentary, which is also sometimes fascinating, because it'll say things like um, threatened by Negro encroachment. Pretty blatant. Uh, also give them your website, the one that you would direct them to if they want to get a hold of. Uh, obviously, they can go to Amazon, but what is your website as well? Yeah, there's tons of information on my website. It's lindagartz.com, very simply. And there are um, there is a section for book club um, discussion questions. Uh, there's lots of information on redlining, including videos. There's a video trailer. Uh, there's a link to many articles that will tell you more about redlining. Um, including a, a, 
1962 article in the Saturday Evening Post called Confessions of a Blockbuster. And anyway, there's, there's, and it'll also, there's a page for, about the archives, so you can find out just about anything you wanted to know about the background of the book and the redlining and about me on that site. So I hope you'll visit it. Thanks. Talking about the personal here, and in the book, you, you start out with what I took to be a lot of fondness for both your parents. Your father's kind of a more fun-loving guy, and your hardworking mom. Uh, tell us just a little bit about what their jobs were, what, you know, your mom did not work in the sense of uh, you taught school, I taught school. She was uh, not a person who got in on that, although I have a parent who started teaching in 1927, so I guess there were a few of them out there. They escaped, but most of the the wives were just that they were stay-at-home wives uh, leave it to beaver if you will uh tell us a little bit about your dad's job and your mom's job well my mom was definitely not a leave it to beaver mom i mean actually you know it, it always in kind of infuriates me when i look at the income tax which she always prepared my dad did not have any you know uh, financial uh, acuity for this kind of thing and it, she's listed as a housewife and she was so much more she was, um, you know, a daughter of the Depression. She grew up in the Depression. Her parents let her finish high school, which meant uh, she didn't go to work to help them pay the mortgage, and they lost their house to foreclosure during the Depression. And she never forgot that, that they let her finish high school. So she was the executive secretary to the president of the Bear Company here in Chicago. And basically, I mean, she did so much, and her responsibilities were so great. Today, she would have been a the vice president or president of that company. But, of course, that's not what happened. So in the 50s, after she married my dad and they bought this two-flat, um, he wanted to change it into a rooming house. So they had, we had basically 11 tenants living in this one two-flat, but they were very assiduous about um, taking care of it. It wasn't like one of these places where slum landlords just throw a bunch of people in. We had five single men in rooms upstairs, and downstairs, um, we had people living in our very own apartment. They rented out the bedroom. And then Dad put in apartments in the basement. So altogether, there ended up being 11 tenants. And who was in charge of them? My mother. Because my dad um, then got a job where he had to travel half the year. He worked for the National Board of Fire Underwriters, which took him away from home in the winter, sometimes for seven weeks. So Mom was home shoveling coal into a, you know, a coal-burning furnace, taking care of the snow, taking care of the children, but she also had her very mentally ill mother living with her um, who helped with a lot of the housework but could also be quite a serious problem. So then once they, um, when the neighborhood, after the neighborhood changed to uh, from all white to all black, they continued to not only take care of their own two flat, but now they had, they had bought a second two flat and then they had my grandparents' six flat. So now she was in charge of three buildings. My dad was, of course, very good about working extremely hard in the repairs and taking care of everything. But my mom was the one who found the renters, checked their background, you know, and solved the problems. If there were roaches in an apartment, she was the one who called the exterminator. If there was a plumbing problem, she was the one who made sure that, and sometimes you couldn't get a plumber to come into the neighborhood. They would refuse to come in. They thought it was too dangerous. So they both had a strong work ethic. But my mother was the one who, you know, I would say had more of the headaches. And she eventually became furious about this when it, it, it occurred to her that she, she was like working her butt off and um, is really, you know, would have been much better off being 
you know, a secretary in a nicer environment, but she was devoted to these apartments. So that's kind of a very thumbnail sketch, but there's more in, in the book that develops their personalities. Um, and like I said, like you said, my dad, you know, he was always bringing fun into the home, bringing animals uh, for us to, you know, play with. My mom was always the one who was making sure that everything was working right and got us to school. So she was the manager of everything, but she went along with most of this stuff and he planned our vacations and it was, it was really a delightful childhood. We were like free range children. And may I, I ask, do you remember, do you remember Grandma Kay very well yourself, the, the grandmother that was, I, I, she sounds like she may have been paranoid schizophrenic, although I am certainly not a psychiatrist, so I don't know what she was diagnosed as being, but your, your mother had begun keeping a diary when she was 10 years old, and then she would write kind of conflicting things. My mother was so good to me, and then the, in the next line, I, I am, I am afraid of my mother, so it sounds like that might have been very, very touchy for a young child, and I would like to ask you what what memories you have of that just as soon as we return from a short commercial break. We'll be right back. This is Connie Wilson back with Linda Gartz, the, and that is spelled G-A-R-T-Z if you want to look up her website, and we are talking about her book, Redlined, but I have been asking about the riveting episodes within the book about her grandma Kay, as she, uh, as she refers to uh, her real name was Louise, I believe, and she uh, started evidencing some bizarre behavior early, and you said she lived in the home for 15 years, uh, just during the break, we were chatting, and I asked, do you remember Grandma Kay or anything that you experienced during that time? Well, I do remember my grandmother. Um, she lived with us, and she would often take care of me. And I don't have bad memories of my grandmother, right? I, one, one thing I remember is sitting on the floor with her. I must have been a very little child, rolling a ball back and forth with her. But after I read my mother's diaries and my dad's comments and my mother's case history that she made for the psychiatrist, I realized what a tremendous, stressful presence she was in our home, and especially on my parents' marriage. Frankly, I don't know any man that would have tolerated what my dad did for 15 years. My grandmother was a diagnosed psychotic. That is, in what I, my, they kept everything, as I'd mentioned. So I have the report from when she was in the Cook County Psychiatric Hospital, um, and it was even recommended she be put into an institution back in 1949. And for some reason, my mother just ignored that. Well, I think I know it was a scary thing to do. Those institutions were not very kind, nice places back in, the, in that era. So my grandmother lived with us. And when I read the letters and diaries, I realized the intense physical as well as verbal abuse that she hurled at both my parents. My father writes in his diary about my grandmother physically attacking my, my mother and my dad having to get between them. When my father was traveling, I think in my grandmother's um, mentally ill mind, she kind of could believe he didn't exist. And then when he came back, she would, again, attack him, verbally attack him, telling him things like, this isn't your house, this belongs to Lil and me, meaning my mom. Um, so it was... I don't remember some of the episodes where my father re writes in his diary that she's hurting my mother and Paul, my brother Paul and I are standing there and we're saying, leave mommy alone, leave mommy alone. I don't remember that at all. But when my 
see that my dad wrote it in his diary, I know it happened. So maybe I suppressed those memories, but in my opinion, she stayed with us far too long looking back. There were so many instances where you know she was really a danger, and I think finally made my mother uh, institutionalize her as we were gone and left on a vacation and left my grandmother at home for about a week. We would go camping just in Wisconsin. And she left a chicken in the oven that, that she forgot to turn the oven off. And then I could hear my parents whispering, what if she burns the house down? What about the children? So that, I think, was the final turning point that made my mother realize that she could no longer have a woman in the house, her mother, whom she had these, this dichotomy of feelings for. You know, she loved her, she feared her, she loved her, she feared her. Um, and But in the long run, she had to put her in an institution and unfortunately picked one that was an hour and a half away. So that caused further tensions within the household. Yeah, it was a major, a major, um, I think, uh, stressful event, uh, not event, a major stressful period of 15 years that under helped to undermine my parents' marriage, among other things. I, I also felt, uh, and as a child of approximately the same time, I think I might be a couple years older than you based on things that you have put in the book, but living through roughly the same time frame, uh, your, the fact that you and your longtime boyfriend, now husband, were going to maybe share an apartment and your mother was just beside herself and this was not to be done and she was just uh, began drinking even as a result of all of the stresses and she was so upset and for me the emotion climax of the book was the night that she came in you were sleeping or at least she thought you were sleeping and and uh, you you must have remembered it and she was so mad at you you'd had a uh, a fit of words and she was uh, chastising you because you might share this apartment with your boyfriend who, whom you are uh, were married to for years afterwards Decades. and she viewed <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she viewed that as a moral failing on your part and to spit on you as you slept. I thought, how did you react? How did you manage to carry on the next day without confronting her? You know, it was one of those things that I I was so embarrassed for her. She had been drinking that night, um, and and she had never been like an alcoholic. This was not something that was, you know, in her in her past. But you know, she became so angry with my dad because she felt so put upon and that he, and then he started kind of ignoring her. You know, it was kind of a vicious circle. She'd scream at him. He would retreat. Then she'd be more more angry, scream some more. And so she just began drinking at night. And um, this one night I came home and I could tell that she, you know, and she was a smoker. She was drinking and smoking. And I just kind of said, well, good night, mom. And I went upstairs and, and then later she came kind of wobbling into the room and and I'm lying there keeping my eyes kind of closed, but she actually spit on me. And I I could have jumped up and grabbed her by the scruff of her neck and started screaming at her, but I actually was so embarrassed for her that I just decided to pretend that I was asleep. And she didn't bring it up the next day, and I had never brought it up to her, actually, in my entire life mainly because it was so awful that she would feel so, I mean, humil- she should have at least felt humiliated. Maybe she felt she was, I don't know, righteous. 
Well, she obviously was uh, not, you know, the the 60s had marched on and she was still in the morality of yesteryear. I kind of lived with this. My mother took the uh, subtle method of being the good Catholic family that we were. She would cut out the uh, the column about how one should behave from the uh, diocesan newspaper and leave them strategically all around for me to pick up and, and no doubt to guide me, which I don't know that it guided me. It guided me out to Berkeley during all of the Mario Savi riot days so I guess it didn't do much good but uh, sometimes they they do what they can to try to bring you back into line or what they consider to be in the line. Uh, We're going to talk just a little bit more. I wanted to ask you about one thing about your dad and we will go get to that as soon as we come back for some commercials. Don't go away. Khaki Equals Killer, the third novel in the Color of Evil series by Connie Corcoran Wilson, follows the adventures of young Tad McGreevy and friends through the second semester of their senior year that includes romantic encounters, abduction, and a terrifying problem. John Land, best-selling author of the Caitlin Strong series, says, Wilson's work is a subtle hybrid mix of science fiction, thriller, and horror in the tradition of Philip K. Dick and Ray Bradbury. Gary Braver, author of Flashback, says, Wilson's characterizations come alive on the page. After spending 33 years teaching students in this age range, she knows what she's talking about. The Color of Evil series is old-school psychological horror, artfully blended with new-school shocks and twists. Bravo, says Jonathan Mayberry, New York Times best-selling author and Bram Stoker winner. Ted sees colorful auras around people that tell him whether that person is good or evil. For Tad, red signals violence. Khaki equals killer, and it's a color he wants to avoid. Find out who lives happily ever after, and who does not, in Khaki equals killer. Available online and at your favorite bookseller. And this is Connie Wilson at Weekly Wilson with today's guest, Linda Gartz, who has is the author of many documentaries. But in this case, we're talking Redline, her award-winning book. Um, and she is a Chicago author, as am I, for part of the year. And I did kind of skimp on the, uh, the question of the grandparents on her dad's side, Joseph and Lisi Gartz, who were married in October 13, 1911. Uh, they had a, a, a bit of a uh, say and uh, certainly affected the tone of your parents' marriage and things. And tell tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, well, as I had mentioned, I have uh, so many letters and diaries. Both my grandparents kept diaries of coming to America, so I was able to read them. And then my grandfather wrote these wonderful love letters to uh, my grandmother, who had stayed back in what was Austro-Hungary at the time, today Romania. Um, but uh, they were, you know, uh, in... in <laughs> uber hardworking people. I mean, they, 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 it was unbelievable how hard they worked. My grandfather used to say, when I was young, nobody could work me tired. But they were a negative influence in my parents' relationship, too. I discovered when I was reading the World War II letters that my grandmother, um, her maiden name, you know, her, her first name was, she was Elizabeth, but she was called Lizzie. She wrote to her, my uncle, my dad's younger brother, when he was training to be a navigator, how much that she'd really disliked my mother in her kind of broken English. She had to write in English, of course, because Germany was the enemy. So I learned that when my parents were first married, she already expressed a dislike for my mother. 
And she continued this, like my mother would write in letters to my dad when he was traveling, um, your mother is always belittling me. Whatever my mom would say, her mother would try to put her down. I mean, my dad's mother would try to put her down. And my mom didn't really know how to deal with that um, until, you know, after several years, she became furious with this woman and, and very outspoken. But when my dad was traveling, they lived a half a block away. And um, here's my mom with three little children with a coal-burning furnace. And the only time they would offer any help was when the furnace, let's say, would break down. And then finally, begrudgingly, my grandfather would come over and, you know, help her get the furnace going again. But, you know, here they are just a half a block away. They could have said, can we take the kids for a day? You know, whatever. They would never do such a thing. They were also negative, I think, a little, at least my grandmother, about my dad. So they had a negative influence on my parents' marriage as well, because while my dad's traveling, my mom had, except for her mother, who was mentally ill, she had nobody to fall back on. Like, I look at my friends who are grandparents today, and they're so involved with their children. They love their grandchildren, so, I mean, their grandchildren, and they adore them so much. It's just, I, I just didn't know that grandparents were supposed to be involved with their grandchildren. <laughs> so it was, well, it was I, too bad. I think they missed out. And I want to say, as we are about to leave here in a minute or so, uh, that at the in 1987, there's a picture of your folks uh, smiling happily. They made it through. How, how long were they married? Was it over 50 years that they made it to your, your mom know. and your dad? They, they didn't quite make it to, to 50 years. Um, so I won't, almost. I won't reveal that part. But, uh, but no, they, they, they ended up being married for um, about 47 years. So even despite these terrible um, rows that they challenges. had and the separation and challenges through thick and thin, through health issues that were very severe, they somehow stuck together and actually refound and rekindled their affection for one another very later in their marriage and, you know, before uh, one of them. Well, I I want to say that that is about as good an ending as we're going to get. I have 52 years of marriage, so it gives me hope for the future. And I really want to encourage all of you to uh, get a copy of Linda's book, Redlined. It's an excellent book, and you will not regret it. I've enjoyed having you. Uh, Thank you all for listening, and I thank Linda for being my guest. This is Reno Lovison, executive producer at ChicagoBroadcastingNetwork.com. I hope you enjoyed this interview by Connie Corcoran Wilson with author Linda Gartz, and we'll take the time to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast or website to be reminded when new content is added. If you found this subject matter interesting, you might also enjoy my podcast book review of 1968, The Year That Rocked the World, my blog article about the 1968 Chicago Democratic National Convention's 50th anniversary, or my film review of The First Rainbow Coalition, a documentary that premiered at the 55th Annual Chicago International Film Festival about Chicago's multi-ethnic street gangs in the 1960s, primarily led by activist Fred Hampton of the Black Panthers, who endeavored to affect social change by recognizing that all poor people in the city shared a common struggle to combat police brutality, gain access to services, and find equity in a city that leveraged power by keeping people separated and preying on their fear of those who were different from themselves. All of this is available at chicagobroadcastingnetwork.com.
This podcast episode interview content is derived from a recording originally co-produced and distributed by Bold Brave Media Talk Radio, used here with permission of Connie Corcoran Wilson. Thanks to Steve Solomon for the use of Foster Avenue Beach as our theme song. That's okay.